Exponential Trust Times is the unique AI channel of trust that offers an innovative formula of mentoring at scale for youth people from all around the world. I'm Dr. Lobna Kari, Executive AI Strategy Growth Advisor and Digital Transformer for Fortune 500 and 440 for more than two decades and the President of AI Exponential Thinker. Artificial intelligence, brain-computer interface, nanotechnology, augmented reality, robotics are all technology. As young generations, our mission is to build a sustainable future with trust, exponential technology. So welcome to the future of exponential trust times with our exclusive guest, me, correct. Exponential Business Achievers is a unique fair opportunity for a young generation to learn from business game changers about their business journey and their thoughts on the technology exponential times. In this episode, we fly to Germany to meet our guest, Ludovic Subran, the Chief Economist at Allianz. Ludovic is also Advisory Board Member of Innovation at BPI France and Lagardère, and he is a member of the board of directors of Solignon, which is the Euler Hermes joint venture for Spain and Latin America. Correct me if I'm wrong. So help Perfect. me, please help me welcome Ludovic Subra. Hi, Ludovic. Hi, Lubna. Happy New Year, firstly, uh, and thank Happy you for joining this uh, great discussion, great discussion about exponential businesses. Thank you so much for having me. So. Um, at the beginning, um, we will address many topics in this in this uh, discussion. But before that, uh, let's learn a little bit more about your personal story. So you occupied great positions in various organizations, whether it's in say uh, in France, United Nations, the World Bank, uh, earlier Hermes. I will say it in French again to find yourself three years ago uh, as the chief economist at Allianz. So for our young audience, we are curious to learn more about this incredible uh, professional journey from in different country as well. Well, you know, I, in, um, so I grew up in France. Uh, you know, I come from a very humble family in the southwest of France. And the way to, you know, uh, get a good uh, education is often to study mathematics. So I started to study mathematics. And then I went to a grande école, which is specializing in statistics and economics. Um, and that's, that landed me my first job. I was, uh, you know, we have a, a system in France that sometimes you get paid during your studies. And then you start your career uh, in the, in my case, it was the National Statistical Institute in the Ministry of Finance. And that, that's how I, you know, I started working um, uh, on inflation, unemployment, wages forecast for France and the Eurozone. Um, and uh, after four years at the French National Statistical Institute, where I learned a lot of econometric techniques, and I learned also about uh, you know policy decisions because uh, it was back in the days you know we had inflation. Um, you know I wanted to go a bit abroad, and so um, I started looking for a career at the in the international organization uh, system, and then I found this job really online uh, at the World Food Program, which uh, is not very known now. It's a better known organization because it, it won the Nobel Prize. Uh, this year so the world food program is the united nations organization the largest humanitarian organization that delivers food to the most hungry around the world and uh, 
So, so you know, I was quite young, and you know, I I arrived in Rome, uh, not speaking Italian, and uh, which was quite a challenge. And um, and then I I started working, you know, bring my analytical econometrics background to food security analysis, and it was at the time of the. Um, the, the food crisis and uh, so I was I was going you know I, I went to Darfur to uh, um, Ethiopia to Malawi to Afghanistan to uh, all these places to do um, you know the uh, you know I, I was basically doing the market analysis to understand whether markets were functioning in these places of the world or not yeah. and to understand whether there was a gap that markets was not filling that required uh, the World Food Program to intervene and uh, either clear the market with food aid or deliver cash to people so that they could buy the food because it was slightly too expensive for their purchasing power. And that was that was a fantastic experience. Um, and uh, and then the World Food Program sent me to Panama. So I lived in Panama and worked on, on Central America for a little bit. And then I applied to the World Bank uh, and I joined the World Bank in uh, right when Obama joined the the White House. And that's what I remember. So it was <laughs> so I arrived I, I arrived in Washington and Washington was you know this massive you know uh, party uh, after after George Bush and um, and so I remember you know going to the United States. It was quite an experience also for a French guy. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and working in the World Bank first in the Agricultural and Sustainable Development Division, and then in uh, human capital, so education, health, social protection, and jobs. So, so I had this, you know, this stint in my life where I did basically development economics um, policy, uh, and and th this was really the best, uh, the best life. So, so for the young generation, I always say, you know, if you have sharp analytical skills. The, and if you are agile with your with what you learn and ready to continue to learn on the job, you know you can have so many lives. You know I really had the impression that it was catch me if you can. I started as a macroeconomist, then I went into development and I learned a lot, brought a lot, and then after you know almost uh, four years, I decided to go back to France for personal reasons. And then I said, okay, I, I, it's been ten years of public service. I want to see what the private sector is like, and then I I started working at. Um, at Schuler Hermes, and here another advice for the young generation, uh, always have mentors because the person who told me about the job at Schuler Hermes was my first boss when I started at Ilse. Uh, Karine Berger, if you're watching, you know, she's, she's someone who really, uh, you know, is, is important to me because she really is someone who, who uh, you know, she told me, she said, you know, I, do you, would you be interested in this job? And I was like, I know it. You know, Hermes is the world leader in credit insurance. And they were looking for a global chief economist. And I said, I have no clue about insurance. This is all about corporate finance, a side of economics that I was not, you know, very good at because the, the class was at 7.30 in the morning. So I was like, yeah, maybe that's not for me. And she <laughs> says, you know, the, the fact that you worked in emerging markets, that you you know how macro forecasting work. I think it would be very interesting for them and that you're very global as a, uh, as a you know, you know how to work in a global company. And then I met the CEO of, of, of Hilo Hermes, who just retired this year, Wilfried Verstraat. And, and, you know, we had this breakfast in this, you know, Parisian office, you know, all closed offices with wooden doors. And, you know, at the World Bank, you can imagine it was already the open space. And he tells me, says, you know, you're going to work, if you come work for us, you're going to work for the private sector. And it's not for like the public sector. It's all about profits, profit, profit. And I was like, okay, okay. And, and, and he says, so, you know, remember, you're here to make money and stuff. I was like, yeah, right. 
And so, so I got the job. Fun story is that 10 years, you know, so it's been 10 years almost. I mean, it's not, not eight years, but now Yule Hermes is a champion in ESG, you know. So, so what is very funny is that when I started, I was told, oh, you come from the public sector. So you need, you need to think it's all about profit. And now it's all about the triple bottom line. It's all about climate. It's all about social. Anyway, so I, I made that joke for, to Wilfried when he retired. I, I said, you know, when I came, you were the private sector guy and now you look like you're the public sector guy. So I worked for Yule Hermes. Uh, developed countries models, uh, tried to make sure that the, you know, recruited a team, tried to make sure that we were both guiding decision-making. So credit insurance really is about insuring companies against the risk of, of non-payment by their clients. So it's really B2B, um, you know, it, it is, you know, working capital financing. So it's, it's corporate finance and the macro part helps detect the downturns in the economic cycles, right? So, so I, I did that for quite some time and um, we developed, uh, you know, a lot of analysis on trade and, and big data on our proprietary data and stuff. So my econometric skills and my statistician skills were coming in handy. And then uh, Yulhamis was a subsidiary of Allianz and Allianz called and said, would you be interested in being the chief economist for the group? And, uh, and here again, I was like, I know nothing about life insurance, nothing about property and casualty insurance, nothing about investment really, because you know, I knew about financial markets, but not necessarily about how you look at it if you are working for, uh, for a big uh, investor. And you know, here again, you know, you, I, I went to Germany, started working with already a great team, starting learning a lot um, and applying what I knew, what I accrued along the years, um, you know, trying to stretch a bit the thinking, uh, bring in a bit of creativity, but also try to learn a lot from practitioners, how, how my economic, I would say, background toolbox could be useful for them to guide the decision-making, uh, to, to understand uh, the environment in which they, they operate. And here, Something else that I always say to the to the young members of my team is, this is really what um, I think we're going to have many, we, we will all have many lives in, in our professional career, right? Uh, but what is important is grit, you know, this, this magic mix of passion and perseverance. Sure. So as long as, you know, because a lot of people make, make fun of me because, you know, I'm, I'm really seen as the very passionate person, which people <laughs> like because as a presenter, as a professor, you know, this, I convey something. But I really think this, this is a, a very important part of, you know, we spend so much time at work or now at home working yeah. uh, that it, it's very important that you like what you do. And, and for me, you know, I like the learning part. I like the exchange of ideas part. And I certainly like the fact that, you know, the, this advisory role is, is a form of influence, a form of, you know, trying to understand something new with someone else this confrontation in the good sense is something that has always you know this this is why i wake up in the morning and this is often the question that i ask people that i recruit what what you know drives you to go to work in the morning because you have to have this resonance otherwise you know uh, it's it's difficult sometimes because it's not always working the way you want to especially in big companies you know you don't have the flexibility of startups uh, it's not always as easy or walk in the park as you can imagine. There are you get you get things wrong, you make mistakes, but as long as you have this 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 drive, you know it, you know you forget about the bad things and you really accrue good skills along the way. And this is all about this this continuous learning. Or at least for me, this this is a big uh, part of the way I've built my professional career so far. 
I, I like what you said about passion. And um, I definitely agree. I, I, I want to make a lot of comments on what you said, but uh, I, I will keep it very short, very, very short. Uh, I, I like what you talk about uh, when you talk about passion, because it's very important that young people, especially the future leaders, know that when you go to the work, it's not only about the work. It's if when you are a little bit passionate, not 100%, but at least a little bit, you will focus on a lot of details that you don't learn about before and you have to learn about. And given this passion push you to learn more and to give more. And I, I never go to the work by thinking that I will go to for working. I generally, I go like it's my ownership, you know, it's my business, it's my company. <laughs> and sometimes it looks like crazy, right? To say, no, you are, you are someone here to do the work. No, no, no. I'm here especially because I feel like I have a role and I need to work with all of these people to, to have this target, right? It's not about me, it's, all, it's about all of us. And hopefully people understand that um, when we think, think about the work as a passion, we uh, feel we live every single day like it's the best day in the life, right? And we give the best. So my first question is, uh, to keep it very uh, short, uh, do, do you speak German? Now you are in Munich. <laughs> I, you know, I do, I do. I, you yeah. know, it's uh, it's not an easy language because yeah. I never learned it in school. But um, but you know, you, I have to. So at least what is very funny is that I learned to give economic presentation in German before I learned to uh, function in a dinner conversation. Okay. Because you know the way you know because I I knew many languages before. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I have a matrix to learn languages, right? So I know the, the first thousand words that you need to learn to make sure that you can uh, make, you know, your, your way through. The problem is that everybody talks to me in English because, you know, my German is very uh, slow. Mm -hmm. So they have the impression that they talk to a seven-year-old speaking uh, German. So, but, but when I have to give presentation to a German-speaking audience, then I have to. And so I learn by heart. Uh, and, and the other thing that is funny is that the way I like to learn languages by learning uh, idiomatic expressions because I find them very funny, you know. Okay. And uh, so, so sometimes, you know, my German is broken, right? So it's it's all over the place, but that that makes people laugh a lot when I use this very, I don't know, this very expression. homey expression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then they're like, "What where did you get that?" So yes, yeah, I can get by. I, I force myself to read the newspaper in German, also to understand the, the zeitgeist, you know, the, the spirit of the way, you know, the, the people think about economic topics in German, which are very different from my home country, France, on, on, on yeah. debt, <laughs> but also on inflation and so forth. So I, I do that and, um, and I took classes, you know, so, uh, so that's, uh, I, also, I also try to have during uh, the lockdown, for example, I tried to, you know, just to think about something else because it was a very hectic time for us economists. We had to run models all the time and stuff. Yeah. So I, I, I forced myself to have at least once a week, you know, a chat with, uh, with uh, Im Traud, that's, uh, that's the way my, my teacher is called, to just to, 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 to get to, to somewhere. But it's, you know, now with the, with the lockdown and the fewer exchanges and my home is in French and, you know, most of the work is in English. My German gets rusty, but uh, but I, I you know it's a question of regularity. Yeah, but because it's, uh, it's, it's a, a fascinating language to be. It's fair. A fascinating. I was learning uh, this language two years 
couple of years ago. And believe me, if you talk to me, I will not uh, handle <laughs> even two sentences. But anyway, uh, you need for, to practice like any any language. Yeah, exactly. So you talk about um, forecasting and working on uh, economic modeling. Uh, now the question is, what is your, like for our young audience who are curious about your recent role of, it's recent three years, it's not recent, but yeah. uh, your current role as the chief economist at Alliance, and what are the main challenge of such important role? I mean, the, the role of a chief economist at a company like Alliance, which is both an insurer and an investor, is is twofold. You you have you are here to guide decision making by helping understand trends, uh, by helping understand you know the cyclical development of the economy, helping understand behaviors of companies, markets, uh, families, you know. Uh, so, so it is really informing uh, the, the, the investment managers, informing the board of management, the CEO, informing um, the, the risk analysts on what we coming and how these hypotheses, these scenarios uh, are, uh, what do they mean for us, right? So mm -hmm. the so what for Alliance and Alliance is an asset manager, it's an investor, it's a insurer, a motor insurer, a commercial insurer. So, so it's a conglomerate in a way. So the, the way economic or capital markets uh, forecast, guide the decision is very different. You know, for, for example, for investment, it's all about where will the, the US 10-year treasury be in a year, two years, four years from now. When you look at Eula um, Hermes, which is a subsidiary of Alliance, the one that I worked for before, the job is to understand whether there will be a collapse in trade or uh, a rise in insolvencies. So this is a, you have to have a 360 view of the economy. So my team, I have macroeconomists, microeconomists, strategists, uh, sector advisors, because it is a bit of a mix of all of these, uh, you know, facets of, of the economy. That, that's the first role. And the second role is more of an outreach role because we develop so much research. The idea is to use that research as a way to build the brand equity of Alliance as a credible company, as a thought leader, as a company that really thinks through these issues, it can be ESG, it can be a, a, a trade, it can be a, a financial literacy, it can be a, um, a PPPs in infrastructure, because you know we, we work on that internally, and then we try to see whether this is something that our clients, prospect, partners, uh, policymakers are interested in the view of a large company like ours. So that's, that's a wonderful, you know, uh, opportunity for the team also to exchange ideas outside of, of, of the team. And, and these are really, for me, the two roles or the way I see uh, the, the role the that you're going to The, the, let's say the, the challenge is, is challenge uh, so far. Yeah, the, I mean, 2020 and, and COVID 19 has been a major challenge because you all, nobody has seen that. So, so in economics, you know, the way you think is often through empirical evidence through what we know from academic research, what we know what we've seen in the past on, on reaction functions of central banks and um, ministers of finance and currencies and so forth. And COVID-19 is a bit something that happens once in a century. So the challenge is to, you know, try to grasp complexity with a lot of humility and still be creative in trying to address, you know, something that nobody has ever seen before. Mm -hmm. So we had to look at new data. We had to deconstruct a lot of our thinking about the way policymakers would react. 
so, so the main challenge is to be kept on your toes so that you, you don't feel that you know it all because you've seen it so many times. How many times have I made inflation forecasts? I studied when I was 22 years old, you know. But, you know, making an inflation forecast today has nothing to do with the way I was doing it, uh, you know, 18 years ago or something. So, so being, uh, and this and being pedagogical, because, because, you know, economics is very complex and everybody thinks they're a bit of an economist because they read the economics newspaper. So it's one, it's, you know, you would say that today everybody thinks they're an epidemiologist because they all speak about COVID-19 like they are epidemiologists. So it's, it's getting this patience to try to explain and unbunk or debunk the myth about what people think the way economy works, the economy works while being you know available on explaining to them that they may have understood maybe 80 percent but the 20 percent is really what matters so there is this this idea of being humble about what we don't know and how we can grasp or analytically understand what's happening uh, and covid has you know shown that even more and trying to be in my role in a company i think it's not the same for economists in other setups but in my role there is a big effort of pedagogy you know, to, to really make sure that whoever you have, uh, you know, in front of you, be it your CEO, your your chief risk officer, uh, your 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 clients, you really understand what to where they are in the thinking, and you try to see if you can get them, if you can teach them something and give them something. And knowledge is wonderful for that because it multiplies; it's very exponential. But this idea of how you convey knowledge. You know, the difference between being right and getting it right is essential in my job today, even more than before. Great. Um, you speak about uh, this year, the previous year, uh, 2020, a year of uncertainty and unknown for me and for everyone in the world. So I, I work at like an early 2018, something like that, around with uh, uh, economists in a big bank. And at that time, I remember myself, they, they told me that a big crisis will come end of 2019, early 2020. So I remember this, but I didn't focus at that time. I was like, you know, more focused on AI and technology and, and making my prototype working than the, those discussions. My question now is, if we uh, use, like we, uh, um, we go back, come back to 2018, was it possible to predict this crisis and this, maybe not the pandemic, but this crisis? You know, the, I think in, if I go back to 2018, we were already in a Trump world. And so we know that cooperation is difficult between countries. We could see already vulnerabilities on how disconnected the financial markets were from the real economies. We had some, you know, cues. Uh, back in, you know, at Allianz, we have a, a company that does, which is called Allianz Global Corporate Specialty, which specializes in large like natural catastrophes and cyber and so forth. Every year they run a survey, which is called the risk barometer. The next one is actually coming out soon. And they ask people, what is the top risk, you know? And, and very funny, I, we, we looked at this with my team and we realized that most of the time, what they consider as the top risk ahead was a weighted average of the past headlines of the FT. Okay. <laughs> so meaning that unfortunately, the way we assess risk ahead, there is this uh, anchoring bias, you know? So you often have a bit what you've seen, but there was always pandemic, you know? So the big sanitary crisis was always somewhere. It was never in the top five, not always in the top 10, but it's something that was always in the top 20. Yet 
we never did anything about it. We defunded the WHO. We uh, never really have contingency planning to the level that was needed to have home office. Uh, you know, we and policymakers never really uh, contingently prepared for the logistics that was needed to distribute a vaccine. We can see that now. So, so it's very funny. It's it's one of these stuff. You know, Michelle Walker has this this saying. This is she calls it the the gray rhinos. You know, instead of the black swans. You know. Uh, the gray rhinos are stuff that we know are more or less, you know, a hot potato, but okay. we never really do the work of building the coping mechanisms to address them. So if you ask myself in 2018, I think I had read somewhere about pandemic risk. Were we able to know when it would happen and suddenly how the world would react to this? No, it was, it was impossible to predict, but it was something that at least had been alerted upon over and over again by experts, but you know these these are the type of experts. You know it's 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 difficult to to be right too early. You know it's it's always about timing. Uh, what we knew again uh, back then though is that you know if we had one of these major shocks like this this the COVID nineteen crisis, uh, we would be testing some of the existing vulnerabilities of our system, and and we really saw that. Uh, with with protectionism, with uh, with uh, the role that central bank have to play because of the vulnerabilities of the financial system, the role that uh, 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 governments have to play, you know, at the European level to really get something yeah. together to avoid, uh, you know, a, a, a repeat of what we saw in 2008, 2012. So we we had some parts of the puzzle, uh, and and but we didn't know, of course, that it would be like this. I think, uh, and so that's that's um, that that and, and for for our world of of risk and for your world of exponentiality, what I think is fascinating is that people really see with their eyes that exponential, systemic, uh, ex, uh, you know, uh, covariant, uh, probabilistic risks do exist you know, like climate change, like all of that. Before, you know, trying to explain to people that there are some things that are exponential, like digital, but like viruses, like climate, yeah. it, it, it's difficult because the brain is trained to think linearly. Sure. Uh, now, I think people just, you know, they understand that the R0 of 1.5 is not in the reproduction rate of the virus of 1.5, is not like 0 0.8. That does mean that there's going to be a lot more cases and, and death, unfortunately. And I think for, for, for the world of risk management, it's a big wake-up call. Uh, but all, it is also for everybody who has been working on, on behaviors and certainly for people who have been working in digital saying you should, you need to learn beyond the tech aspect you need to learn about exponentiality because when it yeah. comes to your life these trigger this should trigger different reactions to the one that you used uh, to in a linear life i would say and that that i think was is fascinating as a learning yeah? and you're right you know when when we launched ai exponential thinker one year ago more than one year ago but officially from california one year ago uh, it was hard to explain AI exponential thinker and especially exponential. And just two, two months after that in February, when it comes to the pandemic, it was before I start explaining, it's very easy to explain, say just COVID-19, everyone know what is mean, the meaning of exponential now. So, so it's more <laughs> easy, but we didn't predict it, right? At least for yeah, now. Yeah. So, Unfortunately. Um, I, I, we, we learned a lot this, uh, during this couple last months about 
the leadership of many countries about this pandemic, whether it's the United States, China, France, UK, and others. But my question will be more on the country that we think that they handled very well uh, this pandemic, like Germany, Netherlands, and Taiwan. My question is, uh, where especially those countries and when it comes to manage the pandemics, how they did it? And is it true that they handle it better than the other one? You know, there are several, I mean, we will know certainly in five years or 10 years when we're gonna have really the, the full picture because um, it's funny, you mentioned the Netherlands. The Netherlands managed the early phase of the pandemic maybe better, but they are very bad with vaccination. Uh, you know, so what we see is, is there is this edge of Asian countries with, they decided to go for isolated quarantines, apart from China that did a massive lockdown, but uh, they decided to manage it very individually with test, trace, isolate, which is the motto. And, you know, now, now look at the Taiwanese economy and, you know, they, they, they are booming, Korea, and, and they still have, you know, China has an edge that is impressive on the rest of the world today because of their being first in, first out, right? So, so I think there are some, some countries, uh, you know, decided, especially in Asia, to handle it in a very uh, detailed way. Some other countries, especially the Europe, uh, the European countries, the UK, the United States were late to managing the pandemic. Uh, because the arbitrage between health and economics was difficult. And so this was a very politically charged decision. Uh, this, you know, not all uh, leaders are like uh, Chancellor Merkel uh, have a PhD in, uh, chemi in chemistry. So not everybody understands also, I guess, what it means to have such a, a, a tragic uh, virus circulating at this speed in the world. Um, you know, I guess, uh, Europe decided to do this massive lockdown because back then the only model we had was uh, was was China and then the US couldn't do the lockdown because of the very decentralized way um, you know the the power is distributed and this this type of lockdown could be enacted so you know now we have a bit of um, uh, you know, we, we can see with a bird's eye view a bit what happened in 2020 and it's true that Asian countries are really impressive. Uh, in Europe, I think uh, Germany and Italy manage it slightly better than the rest. Uh, and in the US, you could see also throughout states that there were very different choices. So, so you start seeing that, um, you know, like any exponential, you know, to flatten the curve, the earlier you start, the better it is. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, uh, and, and then you also see that the, um, the responsabilization, the empowerment factor was very important. Uh, when you, every country that tried to centralize the, the issues ran into a, a problem of having, uh, you know, losing the grip to the people on the ground. Uh, and I think, for example, that's what makes the difference between Germany and France in managing, um, you know, not only the, the lockdown, but also the, the availability of tests, the availability of masks, and today the availability of the vaccine. Um, now we are early 2021. So, of course, the cards are a bit reshuffled. Uh, the immunization rates are very different. You know, everybody is praising Israel for, you know, immunizing already more than 25% of the population. They're looking at the UK, you know, who everybody predicted the doom and gloom because of Brexit and is basically much more intense. It, you know, I think it's a very evolving matter to have these cross-country comparisons. Um, 
but clearly, um, I think one of the legacy, one of the, the scaring effects of, of the corona, I hope on the positive side, would be that we invest much more in our health systems. Uh, because, you know, right now we talk about advanced economies, but if I think about the emerging uh, vaccine nationalism, you know, availability, prices, uh, the number of nurses and staff that can vaccinate in some emerging countries are going to be a problem. So we are far from finding uh, you know, a common ground or synchronization from the vaccine. So whatever coping or whatever strategies countries uh, are going to put in place between now and the end of 2021 will also matter a lot to understand which country is going to get better out of the crisis compared to the other. So, so the jury is still out because whatever is happening or whatever is being um, at stake now with the vaccine could actually change again uh, the, the success of uh, of, of, of the, the, the health management and the economic consequences of, of, of the coronavirus epidemic. So it would be, you know, a full two years of the life of the world where our future is in the hands of policymakers. I hope also that it means that we understand that voting is important because, yeah. you know, whoever you vote for uh, can, you know, decide on a lot of stuff these days. So, so for me, that's, that, that's really what is, uh, fascinating about these cross-country differences, for sure. I think voting is very important, as you said, and I agree definitely, but also um, I will add that uh, getting involved in social ventures is very, very important uh, because you can raise voices and, and build this future that no one knows about it, anything right now, right? So- Yeah, that's true. We and the other thing Lovna, that I wanted to say is, is one of the things also in terms of economic models that we see that is explaining that some countries are doing better than others is that the share of your economy that is related to services is very important because the coronavirus is a service crisis. You know, the, the losses are very concentrated to the sectors that uh, are victims of lockdowns. So, so air transportation, retail, hospitality, uh, events, you know, uh, restaurants, you know, whatnot. So, so the, the higher the share of services in your economy, the more of GDP of growth, you know, domestic product is at risk, you know. And so some of the resilience we've seen economically is also higher among countries that have a stronger manufacturing sector. You know, for very... With more than... 50,000 young people empowered in time of pandemic and uncertainty. We are grateful to our remarkable guests with exponential experiences and from great organizations such as Amazon, World Economic Forum, Harvard, Google, Berkeley, and more. Thank you to our great audience and keep tuned for this new episode in the unique AI channel of trust by AI Exponential Thinker.